And so ends the reading, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Today's message I've titled, An Ominous Warning. Not a title typically associated with these verses, I'm sure. But a few weeks ago, I said to you that we live in a non-judgmental age, an age of absolute tolerance for all kinds of evil and wickedness. I also made the statement that many Christians are quick to quote, out of context, of course, the words of Jesus from Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. Well, here we have another set of verses that many non-believers quote when confronted with the evidence of sin in their lives. They will say something like, well, you know, I don't have to worry about how wicked my life is because Jesus forgave that adulterous woman, didn't he? He didn't condemn her. And so we have a passage before us that is known to many types of people. Now, what I'd like to do is proceed in the following manner. First of all, to understand the details of what's taking place in these verses. And then, I would like for us to understand the redemptive and historical nature of this event. And then thirdly, let's understand what I've called here the ominous warning from these events. So as these things unfold, we find Jesus teaching people in the temple at Jerusalem. Now, as we know from those preceding verses in chapter 7, this is taking place during the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And although this was indeed a religious holy day, there was plenty of revelry and partying going on. Much like we have at Mardi Gras in New Orleans, which is associated, many people don't realize it, but it's associated with the Lenten season and Easter Or, of course, there are Christmas parties and all that sort of thing. These are supposed to be religious holidays. Now, please look at verse 2. Reading from the New King James this time. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. So, here's an example where the Bible uses the term translated as all in a variety of ways. And in this case, it does not mean that each and every person, each and every living soul at the temple, came to Jesus that day to be taught. There can be little doubt that the temple was thronged with hundreds of people for a feast like this. And that is what this verse is getting at. Not all in the sense of universal each and every person, but all in the sense of all types of people. A whole lot of people came. Now we see in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees show up with a woman whom they have conveniently found committing adultery. From what we know of those men it is not at all unlikely that they set her up so that they could do this very thing. Now, the Greek text indicates that this woman was a married woman. Now, some people mistakenly jump to the conclusion that she was a prostitute. There's nothing in the text that indicates that at all. But even more bizarre, she had been caught in the very act of adultery with a man other than her husband. How in the world did they manage to do that? Well, she was set up. It being festival time, that sort of thing was probably not uncommon, and the Pharisees knew it. So they literally drag her from the bed out of the out to the temple area where Jesus was teaching. And they gather around him. We can picture maybe a semicircle around Jesus. And they take this poor woman and thrust her into the midst, standing there between them all. And they pose this question to Jesus. What do you say should be done with an adulteress? 
Moses said, she must be stoned to death. So in posing that question, they're hoping to entrap Jesus. And we know this from verse 6. They asked this to test him. They wanted to find a reason to bring charges against him. Remember now, in the previous set of verses, they sent police, the temple police, to arrest him. The temple police came back and said, we've never heard anybody who speaks like this man. In other words, we're not going to arrest this guy. He's a, he's a brilliant rabbi and teacher. So that attempt failed to corral him and get him thrown into trouble. Now they're trying something else. Because if Jesus said she should not be stoned, well, they could accuse him of contradicting the law of God, which clearly says that she might. So this was a question where they would be certain to lead Jesus to his demise, no matter how he answered it. You know, it's like the old question, are you still beating your wife? How do you answer that question without implicating yourself and making yourself look bad? But he, if he said she should be stoned, well, then the Pharisees could accuse him of violating Roman law because the Romans had reserved the right of stoning or public execution or capital execution to themselves. They did not allow the Jews to do that. Only the Roman authorities had the power of life and death. And notice the Lord's reaction to all of this. He stoops down and he begins writing on the ground with his finger as though he's ignoring them. Now, I think there's several reasons behind what he did. Let's keep in mind that he's dealing with people who are hyper-focused on their traditions and their laws. And one of those traditions and laws said that on a holy day or on the Sabbath, you were restricted from writing things in the normal fashion. But according to their Pharisaical laws, you could write something with your finger in the dust. So he's sending a signal to them that he respects their traditions and the law of God here. But, of course, the hyper-focused question is, what did he write? See, he knew the utter hypocrisy of their charge against this woman and, frankly, their false motives for bringing her to him. So here they are acting as if they are outraged over an act of adultery while they're plotting the murder of Jesus. So those men, they're masters at deception, as, at being phony, and misquoting and misapplying the law of God. They were masters at it because they and their forefathers over many centuries had added their traditions to the law. And now the Pharisees have rightly said that the law of Moses required the death penalty for a woman caught in adultery. That's true. But I want you to listen to God's law to the very passages that they might be thinking of and see for yourself what Jesus already knew. Notice what they do not say. Leviticus 20 verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, they both shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 22. Excuse me, and also in Deuteronomy 22, which is in this passage, if a man is found lying with a woman... Married to a husband, they both of them shall die. So the Pharisees, they're not really interested in God's standards of justice. If they were, they would have brought the man who was committing adultery with the woman. And remember, they caught her in the very act, it says. Why didn't they bring the man? Well, because they've changed the statutes of the law. They've changed it so that any man guilty of adultery would not have to pay the ultimate price, only the woman. But... There's another reason that we speculate about with some justification. 
It's entirely possible that the man who was committing adultery with this woman was either one of the Pharisees himself or somebody related to them, somebody they knew, in other words. That's how they were able to get the timing right so they could catch her, quote, in the act of adultery. Friends, God's law is not based on the practices of some distant chauvinistic culture that was hostile to women. Now, the traditions of the Pharisees certainly may have been that, but God's law is eminently fair in its dealings with men and women. It was the Pharisees, the scribes, who had corrupted the law of God. Now, again, there's been a lot of speculation about what Jesus wrote in the sand. I remember some years ago, uh, Michelle and I were looking to buy a, a new car, a used car, and so I had gone to one of the several used car dealers here in Malden, not the ones, you know, up the road, up Lawrence Road, but the, the local places. And uh, this guy had a number of cars. I was looking for a Toyota or a Honda or a Nissan. And he had a number of those kind of cars, and he assured me they were in good condition, and he had them serviced. And uh, any time there was any kind of issue before he sold one, he took it to this car repair place just two doors down from his place. He said, if you want to, you can go down there and ask him. They'll give me a good reference. So I did that. And I walked into that automotive repair place, and the guy was behind the desk. And I explained, as I began to explain to him who I was and why I was there to get a reference for the guy up the street about his cars, I noticed the guy started looking down and writing something, like he was ignoring me. But then as I finished, or I was just about to finish, he said, well, you know, I think I might be able to help you with that. And then he held up a piece of paper on which he had been writing, and in big, bold letters, he had written the word N-O, no, with an exclamation point. In other words, no, don't buy anything from that guy. Now here, this is the only place we know that Jesus wrote anything. Some have supposed that he stooped down and he wrote down the names of all the Pharisees who were standing there and uh, a list of all their sins. Some have speculated that he might have written out the words that you just heard me read from Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And while others say he was just simply writing stuff in the ground to show his contempt for their charges. I think what he wrote is he wrote the word death penalty or stone to death. Why else would he then stand up and say what he did say? But I, on top of that, I think his actions are highly symbolic, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. He said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin cast the first stone at her. So that's his answer to their question. Should she be stoned to death? Yes, she should, according to the law. But he's not saying that just because we all sin, we should not sit in judgment upon anyone. He was telling them that only those among them who themselves had never committed the sin of adultery were morally qualified to throw a stone at her. Notice he doesn't contradict the law. All he's done is to set in stark contrast the true requirements of God's law word, as opposed to the partisan, hypocritical, and underhanded way those men had corrupted that law. God gave the law to bring conviction of sin, sins of the heart, sins of the mind, sins of the body, sins of thought, sins of action. But we learn that Jesus not only outsmarted those men, he also shamed them into the reality of their motives. So they one by one, beginning with the oldest among them, they begin to quietly drift away. And the order in which they drift away is in accordance with their traditions and with the law of God. The 
eldest among them would be the one to cast the stone and, you know, bring forth the conviction. But even the most important one begins to leave and they follow. As wicked and as hard-hearted as they were, they felt something within themselves that made them cowards. Friends, as fallen and as perverse human nature is, there is some degree of conscience in everyone. And so here is Jesus, left alone with the woman, who by now must really be wondering what in the world is going to become of her. We've no idea whether she knew anything about Jesus, though it's a distinct possibility that she did. As when I read the text, I pointed out, uh, a Greek term is put in her mouth, the word kouriest or kouriei. She, the term Lord says she must have known to call him that, but if nothing else, she must have realized he was an important enough man for the Jews to come to him and ask him to decide her fate. And I can just imagine that as Jesus raised himself up from his kneeling position on the ground, she was most likely anticipating some kind of direct question from him. Okay, sister, they're all gone. Now tell me, are you guilty as charged? But no, he didn't say that, did he? No, instead, he asked her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And since there was no one to accuse her, legally, she could not be tried. The law required two or three witnesses for a trial and a sentence to be carried out. But there was no one. And more importantly for the woman, not even God's divine son, was going to condemn her in this particular instance. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Now, let me just point out here, and again, I'm going to come back to this toward the end of the message. This statement of his, neither do I condemn you. From the legal standpoint, from the judicial standpoint, that is the first hint of an ominous warning to her and all the people of Israel. And I suppose that there was no one in all Jerusalem who was more dumbfounded and amazed than that woman was. She was guilty as charged. She deserved nothing but scorn and derision, and according to the law, death. But she was given grace and mercy and forgiveness. And what a marvelous picture that is of the salvation of God. What a perfect example of how the guilty sinner stands before God, worthy of death and condemnation, and yet, for some inexplicable reason, receives grace and mercy. Now there is in this dramatic story an unspoken lesson, several of them actually, that illustrates God's purpose and plan in human history on the broad scale, but on the more immediate scale, his plan for apostate Israel. The nation of Israel were the people of God in the older covenant age. They were the people whom God chose out of all the rest of humanity to be the bearers of the good news of the kingdom to the world. And throughout the Bible, the old covenant nation is frequently frequently likened or compared to a bride, and Jehovah God is likened to her husband. The Older Testament is replete with examples of God comparing himself to a faithful husband, while his wife, meaning the people of Israel, go into bed with other gods. And so in God's eyes, when his people disobey him and prefer other gods, other ways of life, other standards of law, it is like a wife preferring another man to her own husband. Let me just give you one example. From Ezekiel chapter 23, reading from the Christian Standard Bible, 
Then Jehovah said to me, Son of man, will you pass judgment against Aholah and Aholibah? Then declare their detestable practice to, uh, practices to them. They have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. And then it's clarified, they have committed adultery with their idols. They have even made their children that they bore to me pass through the fire as food for the idols. In other words, this is spiritual adultery. And this problem of spiritual adultery was rampant in Jesus' day. Oh, it wasn't the kind of thing that had the people of Israel worshiping trees and rocks and idols like their forefathers are accused of here. No, this time the adultery, excuse me, the idolatry, the spiritual adultery was far more malevolent and lethal. Because by the time the Lord Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, they had made idols of their traditions and institutions. The very things that they supposed were to point them to God, they had corrupted. And they had turned them into idols that they worshipped more than the Lord God himself. So here we see the leaders of the Jews, those men who are guilty of spiritual adultery, bringing a woman, an adulteress, and they try to bait the Son of God into having her stoned. They're so blinded that they could not see that the very thing they hoped would be means of trapping Jesus was itself the means and a powerful illustration of their own sin. When Jesus stooped to the ground and began writing, that was one visible visual reminder to them. A reminder. Whether they picked up on it at the time or not. A reminder. But the same figure, excuse me, the same finger, that had written the law on the two tablets of stone at Mount Sinai is also right here, writing on the ground. He had done that a thousand years earlier on Mount Sinai. And just as we have pictured the image of faithless Israel as an adulterous woman, so too, as we've said, is God's promise of forgiveness. I would like to suggest that there are several important lessons that we can take away from this, from this incredible, remarkable story. First of all, we should be advised. I mean, let's just bring this all down to, to real time and real life. We should be advised of the terrible consequences of the sin of adultery. God had a very good reason for eternally encoding the words, thou shalt not commit adultery in the Ten Commandments. Sexual infidelity in marriage is a grievous sin. It is treason to the family. You ever noticed? If you haven't, it, it would be a good Sunday afternoon research project for you. Go back and look up all the sins listed or crimes in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that require the death penalty. And almost without exception, they are related to something that is treasonous to the family, brings destruction to the family. Isn't that interesting? While we do not execute those guilty of the sin of adultery today, we have to recognize that it is a sin that can kill a marriage, a family. And spiritual adultery is no less dangerous. How many of us here today are guilty of preferring other gods to the one true God? Now you may say, well, wait a minute, wait, whoa, whoa. I don't have no statues of Buddha in my living room. I don't go down to the Hindu temple down here on Bethel Road and, and jump around with the Hindus in front of their gods. Oh, but how easily some good church folk fall into the trap of worshiping a building or a piece of land or some tradition and thereby become guilty of spiritual adultery. 
But then secondly, as we've already noted, we also learn about the grace of God. Someone has well said that grace is something we receive, pardon, when we don't deserve it. The Bible declares that no one born of human parents deserves anything from God but his wrath and condemnation, and yet to countless millions his grace is given instead, just like the woman taken in adultery in this story. And then finally, we learn something about the nature of repentance from sin. Notice that Jesus' last words to this woman, his last words were her, to her were not, neither do I condemn you. Now, un- unfortunately, that's where many people would like for the story to end, with him having said that. But it doesn't end there, does it? Look again at verse 11. His last words were, go and sin no more. Somebody once said that true repentance is being sorry enough to quit, to go and sin no more. It means that we value our relationship to the Lord to such an extent that we don't want to keep on committing the same sins. It means that we have understood something of the real meaning of grace and forgiveness. And we're no longer living according to our old way of life. God has given us a new life, a new birth, and a new disposition. And so, friends, let us all take a serious look at our lives and see whether or not we have forsaken our sins. And let there be no rest until we can honestly say, I hate all sin and I desire to sin no more. But now we haven't, we haven't come to this ominous warning quite yet, have we? What is that? Do you remember the Older Testament reading we had earlier in the service today from Hosea 4, chapter 4, 12 to 14? Let me read it to you again from a different translation. This is the Common English Bible. Speaking to um, the prophet, or the prophet speaking to the people of Israel, he says, My people take advice from a piece of wood, and their divining rod gives them predictions. A spirit of prostitution has led them astray. They left God to follow or go whoring after, is the literal term, after other gods. They offer sacrifices on mountaintops. They offer sacrifices under various trees because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters act like prostitutes and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. But notice, and listen again to what he says, God says to the prophet in verse 14. I will not punish your daughters because they act like prostitutes, nor your daughters-in-law because they commit adultery. I will not punish them. For the men themselves visit prostitutes and offer sacrifices with temple sex workers. So now the people without sense must come to ruin. The people who lack godly wisdom are doomed, in other words. So the Lord is emphatically declaring, That when men will not obey him, he will not punish the sins of their wives and their daughters so that their families become free to sin as a judgment on their own apostasy and ruin. Dr. Rostuni, talking about these verses, said, and I quote him, Those who have authority must exemplify obedience to the law of God from their heart and into all their being, or else God's judgment will in time turn against them rather than those under their authority. Friends, if you have not noticed, we live in a time where our political leaders, our religious leaders, they view themselves as above the law, above God's law. 
But Almighty God requires them, most of all, to obey his law. And time and again, we can see all through history how that God's judgment shatters the arrogant and godless governments of evil men. Have we not all seen the images of our bigger cities, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and certainly Washington, D.C., these places that were once a testimony to our human pride and arrogance and ingenuity are now places of broken down, infested pestilence and vermin. In other words, friends, our leaders have betrayed their trust and therefore God condemns them. But you see, in condemning them, we all stand condemned. Long before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, it was recognized that commonplace disobedience to the law of God had led God to abandon personal judgment, just like we see it here. He says, neither do I condemn you. And in AD 66 to 70, that three-year, four-and-a-half-year period, national judgment fell on the people of Israel. That's why that not condemning the woman and judging the woman, although it was mercy and grace, it was also a sign, an ominous warning. This is what got our forefathers in trouble. God brought judgment against them in the Babylonian exile. The prophets warned them. God warned them. It's going to get to a point where I'm, going to, I'm not going to punish your daughters and your, your adulterous children. You, the whole nation, will suffer. And that's exactly what happened in the judgment of A.D. 70. National judgment fell. And we live in an age asking for judgment, begging for it by its sins. And so, therefore, friends, it is necessary and vital that we, of all people, we should go and sin no more. Let us pray.